Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We have a stellar guest this week. We have Dr. Steven Eisenstadt, and we're going to be talking about his most recent book, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. It's going to be an amazing conversation, but first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can find me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us. So when we have incredible guests like Dr. Eisenstein, you know about it. You get that notification instantly to wherever you get that notification. And of course, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them well. You know what they might need to know. Whatever that is, bring them here. Tell them about this place, midnightsonearth.com. Okay, so we're just about to talk to Steven Eisenstadt, but I have to read his bio. So here we go. Steven Eisenstadt, PhD is the founder of Pacifica Graduate Institute, Dream Tending, and the Academy of Imagination. He has devoted his life to understanding the profound wisdom and healing power that exists within each of us. His work centers on the insight that through our dreams and imagination, we can access limitless creativity, innovation, improved relationships, and ultimately our human potential. Dr. Eisenstein has conducted sold-out dream work and imagination seminars, workshops, and pop-up events in the United States, Asia, and Europe. Stephen's methodologies have helped thousands of people to unlock the realms of deep imagination, increase intellectual and emotional bandwidth, and realize personal and professional goals. Professor Eisenstein has served as an organizational consultant to leading tech companies, international leadership teams, and the Hollywood entertainment industry. He has also lectured extensively around the globe on the experiences of dreams, the deep imagination, imaginal intelligence, and unleashing your innate genius. He is also affiliated with the Earth Charter International Project through the United Nations, where he has spoken. Professor Steven Eisenstein has collaborated with many notable leaders in the field, including mythologist Joseph Campbell, depth psychologist James Hillman, Marion Woodman, and Robert Johnson, visionary Gene Houston, Chinese Jungian analyst and scholar Professor Hyung Shen, Aboriginal dreamer and artist Yududuma Bill Harvey, and he is here with us today on Midnight on Earth. Hello, Stephen. Hey, hello. It's great to be here with you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. You have a very rich history there. That's amazing. You're the second person in my life that I have known to work with Joseph Campbell, which is cool. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I think about Joseph often. In fact, he 
Indeed. Well, actually, let me tell the story. I was, Please. Um, yeah, maybe 24, I guess. And I was going on the California coast up to Esalen Institute, which was a gathering place internationally for people that were thinking mm, off the chart, shall we say, you know, okay. into the cosmos. <laughs> and uh, I had the good fortune at that early time of my life to meet Joseph Campbell. Uh, it was great. Beautiful conversations as we're looking up in the stars, you know, on the uh, the coast there of Big Sur. And uh, one thing led to the next. And I said, uh, Joseph, you know, I am in Isla Vista, California, which is a little student community right next to the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I'm wondering, would you be open to coming down and offering some of what you're sharing with a small group of people? He said, oh, yes, of course. He had just retired from Sarah Lawrence University, where he taught for many, many years. Uh, and he would come down, and honestly, there were about 20 of us. Wow. Maybe, maybe 25, 30 wow. gathered around him. Yes, I know. And Joseph would go into his storytelling and talk about myth and legend, and it was just captivating. Right. Two years go by, and of course, then he appears on television, on uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting, with Bill Moyers. And he offers Myths to Live By, which is the name of their conversation, their series. Next time he came to Santa Barbara, it wasn't in that little two-bedroom apartment any longer. We were at the Arlington Theater with 2,000, 3,000 people. It was wow. a wonderful relationship that lasted for decades. And um, I wow. say, you know, at, what an honor. He's such a powerful human. I often describe him as the Einstein of spirituality and mythology. He was truly an archetypal avatar in himself. An archetypal avatar in and of himself is exquisite, is beautiful description. That's exactly correct. What a blessing to be able to be with him, study myth and really experience the imagination from the inside out, yes. Oh, yeah, his resonant field, just being around him and, and getting into his thought processes must have just been amazing. It certainly was that. He, um, you know, he would come to Santa Barbara and make visits twice a year, minimally. And I'll never forget the one time that he, well, I would always pick him up at the airport, you know, and, and you know, host him at lectures and events and so on. There was this great experience. One time he came down and he said, Stephen, I said, yes, Joe, look, I just met this young man, this young man who's asked me to come to visit with him because he's read Hero with a Thousand Faces, his classic book, and he wants to make a film. He wants to talk to me about a film. I, I, you know, I don't really go in for that kind of thing, but I don't know. What do you think? And of course, who he's talking about is Lucas, George Lucas, and right. he can go up the coast to, to visit at the Skywalker Ranch, right? I said, Joe, because wow. I, my, yeah, my work was at UCLA and USC, and I knew those that filmmaking group. And I said, you know, he is a pretty good guy. I mean, I think it'd be worth your trip. So he did it. Next up <laughs> from Santa Barbara, Stephen, fine young chap, this one. I said yes, and then of course the rest is what it is: Star Wars. And so it's your fault. Well, you yeah, created the new American religion. What is <laughs> happening there? You were the conduit for that. Well, in, in my <laughs> small, small little way. And That's so you, George amazing. Lucas, George Lucas forever credits Joe and Joseph Campbell's work. And he's, he's so indebted to him and the, that incredible uh, scholarship that he was involved with. 
And you're quite right. Generations now, you know, there's sequel after sequel after sequel now, all kinds of <laughs> the people have been very involved, very, very cosmos related. Oh, absolutely. And it is because Joseph Campbell knew how to poke at racial archetypes. And I mean, the human race in a way that made people around the world bond with this story. There is so much universal information within that series that of course came through Joseph Campbell to George Lucas. And I feel like, at least in my own postulation, that that is why we have so much attachment in Western culture to this star Wars mythology is because it just poked at every single archetype and racial memory that we have in relation to philosophy and spirituality. Yeah, I think it does. And it, it be- as he gathers it uh, from a, of course, planetary perspective, and then he anchors it in a way that is really available and accessible to all of us, particularly in the Western world. You know, he, it really was a beautiful contribution. Absolutely. And the other person that I personally know that interacted with Joseph Campbell is Wendy Weir, sister of Grateful Dead vocalist and guitar player Bob Weir. And she escorted Joseph Campbell to a Grateful Dead concert and was his chaperone because she did not partake in any substances and they wanted to make sure that nobody quote unquote dosed Joseph Campbell. So she was there with him, but of course he had a fantastic time. He saw the energy, the magic and everything within that experience, the history, what it meant and supposedly was ecstatic dancing the entire time. Yeah, I believe that that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, he really did have a keen insight and an aesthetic eye because he was seen through imagination, through a mythic lens, if you will. And he would see things in so many dimensions. It was really a multidimensional way of perceiving the world and people interacting in the world. It it was quite extraordinary. I'll I'll never forget visiting him. I was with him a number of places, but he had a little apartment uh, in New York City. And he would look out the window and he would see, uh, you know, there's, I think it's Broadway and something. And he would notice people interacting and he would say, hey, when people are in that conversation, noticing the light changing. And from that, just that glimpse of actuality, of human interaction, he would create, go into a mythic, a mythos of its own making, really pull in, you know, cross-cultural study and all kinds of insightful possibility. Oh, yes. That was part of his innate genius. But your book is talking about imagination. And this is what we just mentioned. How would you describe this? What is imagination? Because we all utilize imagination as humans. As we create things, we wonder how certain outcomes might be in a relationship sense. We use our imagination in a lot of different ways. But what is it foundationally? What is imagination? Yes. And that is the core of the new book. And just as you framed, we do use imagination in all kinds of ways. The idea behind that is what you noticed earlier and what Joseph Campbell, of course, picked up on. In addition to humans using imagination, which is fine, wonderful, good, lots of great things happen because of that, something else is also available. And that's what I'm naming the deeper imagination, the autonomous imagination, the imagination that has a life of its own. And to be able to access that quality of imaginal life, that imagination opens resources that are quite extraordinary. And is that the type of imagination that interfaces with consciousness itself and then manifests reality? 
Yes, it does interface with consciousness itself because in a curious way, it is consciousness in and of itself, right? It's not something we utilize or do or employ for a task, although that is available. It has its own capacity and capabilities. The figures of imagination have their own independence, their own autonomy. And in fact, they inform us as much as we interact, interrelate with them. Wow. So where does this information exist? Like the imaginal realm where we project our visualizations, that's real information. It's tangible. It must exist somewhere. Where does it exist in your opinion? Yes, I think that's a great question because it exists in the realm of consciousness that we access, not through our rational mind necessarily, but through our curiosity. I think that's the key, through our curiosity. When our curiosity awakens, imagination comes forward. And we access the imaginal world through dream, waking dream, and sleeping dream. When our eyes are closed, something else opens up, something else awakens, imagination comes forward. When we're walking in a city place or a nature place and we shift, we're not in the rational mind, we're not figuring out the to-do list, we're not really in the busyness of life, which we all are and we need to be, certainly at times. But you know those moments when everything quiets, the body softens, oh, there's a song of a bird flying by, right? Or we're in a city place and we're walking by a shop and we notice the architecture of that child. You know, it's just that other way of seeing, perceiving, experiencing. Imagination is presenting itself. Yes, and there are people that have incredible imaginations. If you think of Nikola Tesla, I always think of Nikola Tesla because he had such a powerful imagination. He could project almost his entire consciousness into that imaginal realm, create devices within that realm that had functionality, correct the deficiencies, and then bring the finished product into the third dimension. Whoa, like that's intense. What do you think about that? Well, it is intense. And um, the the idea is that only certain people have access, but I think not. I right. think we all have access. And I have a name for that. I call that imaginal intelligence, the capacity to really align with the resources of imagination, access the creativity that flows from that and really translate that into the world place. And not just abstractly, you know, into our relationships with one another, into community experience, into the workplace with colleagues. You know, it is really something to access imaginal intelligence, grow, increase that intelligence, and then bring that into the world. Well, your book is designed to help people understand this and access the deepest part of your imagination, like you were saying. So what is the genesis of this book? Why did you feel like you wanted to help people understand this? <laughs> well, the genesis, that's a great word, because that goes back early on to when I was a little boy, I think. <laughs> and I, I do. I don't know. That's a story in and of itself, right? And I'm, um, I'll never forget, actually, this is a, a great experience for me. I grew up in California, in the San Fernando Valley, suburb of Los Angeles. And, you know, my parents brought us to the oceanscape and we would go to the beach. It was so fun, you know, over the pass of Topanga Canyon, usually, and then make it to the beach. And the beach, of course, where all the families would go from suburbia was called Zuma Beach. Lifeguard stands, parking food stands with a big food. I mean, it was just 
perfect. It was just the civilized beach that we'd all go to and feel safe. Yet yeah, that beach had a jetty, a rock jetty. And I was told, we were all told, don't, you know, no trespassing. Don't go on that side. That's going to be dangerous. There's no lifeguard. There's no supervision, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what are you going to do? You're 12 years old. I was 12 years old. You know, I was naturally curious and inquisitive. So the tide goes out one day. It's what's called a minus tide goes way out. And there was a way to walk around on the sand to the other side, which I did, of course. Right. I walked to the other side. All right. I met by a completely different world, a different scape. First, there weren't any lifeguard stands, et cetera, et cetera. And second, there were tide pools because it was low tide. And I sat on a rock out cliff over there, coral, beautiful with the tide pools and the, you know, and the kind of um, seaweed that was and the small anemones and all the sea creatures. It was extraordinary. I'm sitting there and something happens. Changed my life, honestly. I feel the presence of somebody walking behind me and says to me, did you know, did you know that rocks can talk? I was stopped. Did I know that? Yes. I thought that all my life. I knew that. I had no idea anybody else thought that way, thought that rocks could talk. Oh. I looked behind me. Who is there? The 17-year-old, I guess, 17, 16, 17-year-old surfer. Well, when you're 12 and you look behind you and you see a 17-year-old surfer guy. It's like a rock star. Totally a rock star. God, <laughs> right? He's a god. Oh, whoa. And I'm just in, you know, I'm in trance at that point. <laughs> I'm just in another, another consciousness. And I just go, wow, okay. So I'm not alone in all this. And the uh, of course, then I noticed minutes later that the tide is coming back in. <laughs> I've got to get to the other side quickly. So I scurry and get around. And of course, I'm greeted by the civilized beach, right? Food stands, lifeguard stands, and my parents. My mom looks at me. Hey, Stephen, where, where have you been? Uh, what am I going to say? I went to the other side of the <laughs> reef and I, I found a place where rocks could talk. And actually, some people didn't have bathing suits. No, I didn't say that. I'm not going to say that. I just said, oh, I just was walking along the beach. But I knew at that moment that my life would forever be shifted. Wow. I just had a sense that there's imagination. The world's imaginative, right? Rocks can talk. Truly, they can, you know, and there's there's a song that lives in the ocean and there's, you know, an animation that occurs when we're open to it. Yes. Mm. I mean, literally, we're creating the reality that we live in with a series of agreements, you could say, in the holographic sense. It's not even in our conscious mind. We just build the reality. The information is there everything's made out of energy that energy is information that rock of course it can talk it's conscious mm -hmm. living energy just like you are they talk about that in the concept of animism but also it's bigger than that it's matter energy life consciousness it's all one field it's all one thing like and when you understand that when you start to grasp that then yes of course the rocks can talk beyond and more and more. And I named that for me. Everybody has their different way of, of describing. It's a tapestry, really, isn't it? It, yes. it is a tapestry of consciousness, a web. And I call that a matrix. It's a matrix of imagination that we're all participating in. And the sadness is when we narrow and we need to at points in our life, we need to bring focus, of course. It's just that even with focus, you know, to experience the participation, our participation in the matrix of imagination, something becomes available that otherwise would not 
First, our creativity opens. Then innovation comes forward. And the aesthetics of what's possible in the world present themselves on behalf of themselves that allows us to be in conversation, dialogue with. Yeah. Absolutely. You open up to infinite intelligence and that manifests in a lot of different ways, but the gloves are off. The brakes are gone. You activate your infinite potential like you were talking about in your book. So tell me then, what is the imagination matrix? That's part of it, but there's more. Yes, there is more there. You know, again, curiosity awakens. And to have access to the matrix of imagination is to have access to that imaginal realm of consciousness, that quality of experience. We are inside the dream itself. You know, we always imagine that we are dreaming the dream is the, you know, that's usually what happens in the West. Ego develops, we're trained in school, we have a particular orientation in life. And of course we do, you know, we're part of a civilization that prizes that quality of perception. And yet, you know, hey, even in the dream time, many times over, we see a person that looks like us in the dream. We imagine that dream ego to be the center of the dream. And yet, not really. Because when you go inside that way and you see yourself in the dream, you ask the question, who's dreaming the dream, right? (laughs) And it's the who that's dreaming the dream where we are inside participating with the other figures and characters. They're not all aspects of ourselves, which is 85% of that fantasy. They have a life of their own. They make visitation. They're coming not only from my developmental history in the last 24 to 48 hours. Imagination is mused from the beginning by the figures of imagination. Isn't that powerful? (laughs) Because imagination itself is a co-creative experience, even though it is singular and individual to ourselves. We are in that web. We are in that network, that tapestry that you're talking about influencing each other. But really part of changing the world is getting a hold of your imagination, utilizing it for service, and then projecting that into the co-created hologram. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's it. You know, it is co-creation. It's co-creating with the figures of imagination and then um, not discovering really, but finding an alignment in order to be in service to others and to the creative process itself. And it sounds abstract. It kind of does. And two, it is, you know, essential. I mean, I've been a clinical psychologist, marriage, family therapist, a professor, (laughs) done a lot of work over the decades now. And for me, at bottom is the real importance of a sense of well-being, psychologically, emotionally, physiologically. And when we are participating in the rhythm of that imaginal stream, that web of consciousness, something else happens. We find our own sense of our own harmonic, so to speak, and our well-being does increase. You know, we have a sense of belonging to something bigger than each of us personally. That inner community that evolves the figures of imagination being aligned with those figures creates a sense of hmm, placement with inner what i call in the book soul companions we begin to really involve ourselves with the figures that are so dear to us right and as i said curiosity opens when the curious mind opens we actually scientifically we move from a kind of Oh, I don't know, a certain kind of adrenaline state. We move from alpha waves to a kind of theta state of consciousness. And when we're in theta, we are in curiosity. Our body relaxes, our well-being improves, right? Something different 
moves through us. We feel the resonant feel of a different harmony, so to speak. Well, I think there's an energetic stability that attaches itself to the divine paradigm, like the true source of all that, whatever that is, when you're doing that work, as you talk about your soul's purpose, then that stabilizes you. That's yes, of course, it's going to increase your well-being and doing things like you talk about in your book, like what you called the dig massively increases theta waves as you tested. Tell us about the dig and some of the first steps that you can do to increase your imagination. Okay. Yes. And that does lead to increase the theta waves. So I'll start. And let me personalize it. That'll be the best. Sure. I, I work now with thousands of people in this way to open imagination for me personally. It's a morning. It's a praxis like anything we do in life. You know, there is a sense of being in a praxis to bring myself into imagination each day. When I start the day in the process I'm about to describe in the dig, which is the name that I give everybody that I work with has their own particular name in the book. I outline the various steps of this imaginal process. It's a process of immersion, immersion going into, and it starts like this. I begin in the morning. First, I'll write down dreams, right? And I'll, you know, associate with the dreams. I'll animate dreams, allow them to come to life on their own behalf. You know, I connect them to the world of the daytime, notice the guidance that are often, notice the warnings that are presented. You know, I go in that direction. Then something else happens. For me, the call goes out. The call goes out. It's a mantra that I personally use. And the gathering begins. The gathering of who? Well, these figures that I've been interacting with over the years now. And they're not, you know... Um, make-believe. That's the fantasy. And it's not really guided imagery. That's a different process. These are figures that have been important in my life. Sometimes they're ancestors, elders of my life, mentors. Joe Campbell, for example, is one of those figures, those soul companions. James Hillman, another figure. Marion Woodman, another. There are people that have meant a lot to me in my life, that shaped my life. So important to me is a great-grandfather, you know, another figure, a grandmother. These are figures that are important. These are our elders. So the call goes out, the gathering happens. They come forward and to the imaginal figures that are presented in dream, right? Or reverie, nighttime or waking dream. And they also, I've developed relationships with these figures over the years. We all do. It's not at all esoteric. I mean, children are doing this always throughout their first years of life before they're programmed into another way of being present, they have their imaginal figures, right? right? That they connect with and that they offer guidance with, and they are really important in their life. They awaken imagination and their intelligence to be in the world. So I'll do that, the dig. So the call goes out, the gathering happens, and then my work is to bring a witnessing presence. I'm not leading. That's the difference between this and other formulations. I am present here now, and the others are leading into the realms of deep imagination. And there are figures that come forward that lead. One figure almost always is an animal-like figure. Coyote would be a figure, for example, um, a number of figures. And I'll journey and discover what's present, what comes forward to me. The key is that when I'm in that realm of experience is to listen and to listen to who I meet, who we meet, who I'm introduced to in that 
being placed. I'm hosting rather than directing. I'm listening. Yes. And I'm hearing the stories that are coming forward. It's in those stories where the guidance happens. The teachings occur. Wow. That group that you're talking about though, you're bringing their energy in, in that ethereal way. It reminds me of what Napoleon Hill, the famous author, would talk about having an ethereal mastermind group where he would bring in these consciousnesses and visualize having meetings with them in that imaginal realm, and then it would come to life and the information that was gathered would be valid and utilized. Do you think that's a form of channeling or is it also quantum in the sense that because you're sending that energy out, you're in a quantum entanglement scenario where you're bringing their actual consciousness into your conscious field? I think the second, I think we are in a quantum dimension of consciousness, right? I love the work that Prebum did, Bohm after him. I love that work where we're in that interconnected web of experience. We are in a different quality of intelligence and we have access. You know, it's not me, me, me. It's we. I go from a me to a we just to begin with. And then I'm listening and really interacting with these figures. Now, for me, what's important is to really, as you shared very early on to be in service of that, to listen, right? How is that then enacted in the world? It's one thing to have those imaginary conversations or the imaginal conversations, encounters. It's another then to bring that into the world place, into my life, into my family, into my workplace. And I do that in a number of ways. The way that I have, that's each day is part of my practice. I live in Santa Barbara, so I'm in the beach place, right? So every day I'm at the ocean and I go ocean swimming ah. in too, right? Uh, because I'm there. It's, you know, all the sand and the shells and the rocks. And but I do this anywhere I go in the world. I travel so much and wherever I am, I find a time where I will remember who visited, who's visiting now, mm -hmm. what's happening here, rather than what does this mean, right? What does this have to do with me? Those are the traditional questions. Just change the questions. Who's visiting now? What's happening here? That third question is, what is the desire? Yeah, the pull of the future. So when these figures come in the morning praxis or whenever that dig experience occurs, when I'm at the ocean place, for example, I will take a walkabout, truly. And I'll pick up shells and I'll go swimming and there might be something on the bottom of the sea or driftwood. And really, even a can. You know, something that is human made, but it's there now. And I'll just gather them, but I don't gather them with intention. I let them find me. It's not complex. It's not complicated. It's just a very simple walking about and allowing the figures to find me. Then I'll go back to actually where the, my towel is, right? To that <laughs> place. And, uh, and I'll find a place in the landscape and then I'll place them. The figures that I met that morning become incarnate actually. And they take on form and represented by a number of these little items. And then I make a little council and then I take a step back and notice their interactions and there's my interaction with them. The reason I do that is because it really brings form in a sense of purposefulness and service into the work that I did in the morning. It creates an incarnate way of being in relationship. And I offer gratitude. Hey, this is not simply a mind game, although I love what Jean Houston and her husband did with that classic book, Mind Games, or what John Lennon picked that up from them and then created the beautiful song. But rather, it is a way of saying, yes, this is real. This is happening. I'm in the world. 
of people and places and things and creatures and demands and needs and necessities. And I'm also in the world of imagination. And I experience the confluence, the way that these two worlds find each other and me a part of in them. Wow. So is that like a shamanic perspective? Because, you know, the aboriginals talk about dream time. Of course, there's shamanic cultures all over the world that go into those realms. Is that similar? Are the shamanic realms and the imaginal realms the same or is there a different quality? Because it seems like a lot of the activity that you're describing does sound shamanic in nature. It does sound shamanic in nature. And I was blessed and privileged to be with lots of cultures. And I had time in Arnhem land in, which is a sacred Aboriginal place because I met an elder of the Aboriginal dream time and was offered permission uh, to make that journey. Um, actually that, well, let me share this story. This sure. is, yeah, this is, now this is funny that this one's coming. It, it actually, now I'm just reflecting here and now, right in this moment in time. It actually, you know, we're now in the matrix of imagination, right? These stories are intersecting. And I'm remembering that, remember when I was sitting on the stone in at Zuma Beach? Yes. Well, how would I have known at 12 years old, I'm making these connections, right, as we speak, that then go out 30 years and now I'm in the family. Two children and my wife, pregnant, and we're going to make a journey. We were going to go one place, but with pregnancy, we couldn't go to New Guinea. That was difficult with pregnancy. So we ended up going in a different direction, sabbatical that I had at one point in time. And we ended up in uh, Australia. Okay, great, right? Hey, I just saw a National Geographic film, I mean, of all things on television, <laughs> about this guy named Bill Niji. And he was an Aboriginal elder of the Dreamtime. Oh, my goodness. And they offered him up and offered the tradition. And I was just taken, truly. And I wanted to go find this man. Well, you know, I was innocent, ignorant, not naive is really the right word, naive. But so open-hearted. I, I would say open-hearted. Oh, very open-hearted. <laughs> well, I go with all the right intents and hope, right? And I present myself as a university professor thinking, well, that's going to be the way I'll mean it. Well, of course, that's silly, right? That didn't work. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, then I'll be... Um, uh, you know, I'll be doing work on behalf of this social service that I'm doing with the United. No, that did not work. No. So I was wandering about and I went into an art, uh, Aboriginal art gallery and the woman asked me, so what brings you here? So I took a deep breath and I offered and she said, oh, well, you know, let, and I told about my frustration. I never did get to meet this man that I was looking. Well, she said, I'll tell you something. Because of our conversation, I just have a sense of who you are and your sincerity and your heart, your open heartedness. So if you go to this little place on the third Thursday of the month, this little place, um, then I think you'll find what you're looking for. Well, with my son, who is only, I think, eight or nine years old, you know, kids are pretty active at that point. <laughs> he went with me. And we, you know, there's no roads because we're going into the outback, right? So he's following these dirt kind of roads. They're roads, but they're not paved and there's not directions. And we finally, for whatever, well, now looking back, we're being guided in some way. And we find this place that she was describing. It's a little, little kind of post office with post office boxes. And right next door is a fried chicken place, you know, where they're selling fried chicken and stuff. And sure enough, just as she said, Right at the time she said, out of the bush comes a tribe of aboriginals, right? A small community. And I noticed at once who was there, Bill Nitsuji. Wow. I could see. 
But what am I going to do? I don't speak Aboriginal dialect. That's not what I trained in, <laughs> you know. And but what I and I'm not playing a musical instrument, which is another way, of, of course, communicating. But I do feel comfortable sitting next to him, and I do. And, you know, body to body, touch is not a problem for me. We have chicken grease on us and the sun is bright, so we're rubbing each other, you know, rubbing arms, eating. Uh, and finally he looks over me and he says, in very broken pigeon, you know, what brings you here? What brings you here? And I share a little bit and he was understanding enough. Uh, and I told him that the night before this dream came of this big one lizard and I interacted with it because he asked me, hey, you know, dream dream now. And I shared with him the dream. He said, hey, you go go to Guana place. So in that realm of the dream time, you don't interpret, you don't analyze, right? That's different. It's a different way of experiencing in the quality of consciousness we're talking about. Here you go to the landscape itself where the visitation is present and you let the landscape really tend to your imaginal experience and your dream. I went there with my son. And of course, it was obvious where he was directing, which was this big outcrop of rock that looked exactly like a guana. <laughs> so I went there. I remember we were met by a park ranger and they were beautiful. They so protective of the Aboriginal culture and nobody's allowed in Arnhem land. And he said, well, you can't go in there. I've never even been there. I said, well, he said, how, how did you even get here? And I told him, well, I just was talking about you talk with Bill Nidaji? Nobody has talked with Bill. I've never seen Bill. If he said yes, you just go right ahead. That's <laughs> what so we got there. And I just sat there, stood there, and I felt just what happened in Zuma Beach. This is the connection I'm making here and now. That there was this amazing thing that happened. Not words, not a psychological interpretation, not a Jungian analysis, nothing like that. Just a somatic presence and a vibratory connection and communication that was of another nature, a different realm altogether. Okay. I felt that deeply from head to toe, right? I didn't know at all what it meant. It was only 10 years later. I'm at the Hague and I am working with the United Nations and we're trying, we're creating a, a, a charter, Earth Charter, Earth Charter International, the name, Earth Charter to really help with the sustainability of the planet. Right. Five days. I mean, these are only 60 of us. I was privileged to be selected to be a participant. There was just two of us from the United States, Stephen Rockefeller at the time I was there. And Gorbachev at that time was leading that as a leader of Russia at that point, the Soviet Union. And um, we were working with really extraordinary people, right? World leaders, diplomats, people that were very much involved with this initiative, heart and soul, 24-7. We worked for five, uh, four days, four nights, five days. At the very ending, uh, Gorbachev got up and said to everybody's hurt, we've worked so hard. We came in with such hope and desire. We brought all of our expertise, and I have to say, I pronounce this a failure. We just haven't gotten there yet. The air went out of the room. You can only imagine. It was just, oh, despair. I'm sitting there. It was just by coincident fate, mm -hmm. the weaving of the matrix, most likely looking back, right? I'm at the podium and this happens. And then the most amazing thing happened, right? I didn't, I was not in my mind any longer. This rush of energy comes forward through me 
I re-experienced what happened with Guana Dreaming. That's what that was about. Whoosh. I didn't, just out of my mouth came these words, just boom. I think perhaps we're asking the wrong question. We're asking what we can do to save the planet. Hmm. The question that we may want to ask is what is the planet asking of us? Okay, that stopped everything. Robert Schaaf looked at me. Yes, that's what we need to do. Let's do that. And that set me off and the work that I was doing at Pacifica with colleagues in a whole different direction, listening to the planet. We were talking about the ocean or the mountains or the buildings, their animation, their voice, listening to what's being asked of us. And how do we experience that? Dream and imagination. We're part of an imaginal field that we're not completely dominant over, but we are participant of. And listening to those voices, we did that. We did that for years. Gathered information worldwide, brought it back into the charter. And today that charter is living in well, really hundreds of thousands of organizations and agencies and different countries worldwide. Wow, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. You do detail that in your book, but wow, that's incredible. You literally activated that shamanic awareness in that moment to bring it into that meeting that was so crucial for our planet. And do you think that that type of consciousness that you described to Gorbachev is activating in humanity as a whole? Like, are we evolving to integrate that perspective naturally? Well, that is the challenge, isn't it? Because I think, you know, as I travel the world, I'm just about to go to China again. Um, you know, and I have uh, people and groups that I work with in lots of different places. There's so much grief right now in the world of today. And there is challenge in the world of today. So the question becomes, look, if we stay caught in our ego consciousness, and of course, again, there's value placed in deductive reasoning and figuring things out and bringing the scientific mind to all that we engage in medically, professionally. Mm -hmm. But if we stay there, we're going to stay within a box. We are. And we're going to stay within a preconceived formulation. And two, we're going to subject ourselves to the, you know, the opinions of the day. Uh -huh. nice. And then it becomes political and then we become socialized. And then the question is, uh oh, where is that spark going to originate? The awakening story, the new story that's got to emerge, right? We know now that the planet is, and the creatures of the planet, you know, and the ecosystems of the planet and our dear, dear friends, you know, uh, humans that we cherish and value. We all are depending on an awakening story. The hope is, the desire is, my actual direct experience is that by journeying in these realms of imagination and connecting to these soul companions, having these these kinds of conversations, it does open a new story within each of us. We're not as likely to go into conformity. We're more likely to find our own genius, our innate genius, that which we can contribute back. And when we get together in communities, the community that's listening to your podcast, for example, this kind of community that I value and treasure so, so dearly, when we are in community in this way and supporting one another, like making a daily practice to tune in and listen week after week, something different happens. We feel a different quality of connectedness, right? We're part of an awakening story. And then I think uh, we contribute back in a very substantive and substantial way.
absolutely our awakening story, our individual awakening story is critical to this evolution of humanity. But does the earth itself, regardless of the human's contribution to that field, that imaginal field, does it have its own awakening story? And as the earth itself, as a living being, blossoms into whatever it's blossoming into, that we will be a part of that blossoming because we are at least physically and emotionally tied to the earth because we come from it. We're a part of it. We're in that field. We're humans. Are we bound to the earth's awakening story regardless of how our behavior is currently in this state of the world? Well, that's the, that's the question that I think about and, and really reflect on. Of course, the earth energies are generative, right? Yes. The generativity of earth is essential. It's profound. It's part of a life cycle. It, it has its own sense of intelligence, its own capacity. I mean, its own brilliance, truly. And the question is, are we part of that? Well, we are part of that in a variety of ways. Of course, at bottom, we're all part of that because we're all part of the recycling of life, death, transit, right? We're all part of that process. To be awake and in that process is very different because if I'm awake in consciousness and part of that process, then I'm related to the stories that are going back and forth in that process. You know, I'm responsive. I'm not reactive. I'm available. I'm not closed down. I'm soft in my body and breath, not tight and restricted. The agitation, the anxiety, the isolating depression that's so prevalent, right, gives way to curiosity. And awakening. And when that happens, uh, something different occurs. I mean, there's an axiom that I live by, right? That we can't really be curious, not curious, not authentically curious and depressed and or anxious at the same time. We can't. The reciprocal inhibitors. So to the extent that we open our curiosity, awaken into imagination, particularly the realms of deep imagination, participate, participate with people and the imaginal figures that we find in the matrix of consciousness to the extent that we're there, you know, something different happens. Yes. Right. It does seem to activate a multidimensional awareness where there is a lot more information than just in the third dimension. And if you're able to strengthen that through faith, I believe, because it, it seems like fear is the absence of faith. So if you let go of fear, replace that with the polarity of faith, then you can unlock all of the information that resides in those dimensions, like the imagination dimension, like that imaginal place. Like we can unlock that information and strengthen that. And in your book, you really outline a lot of different techniques and really a step-by-step process to go from just really understanding what imagination is as a core concept to really integrating all of these multidimensional awarenesses, all of this beautiful information into a new method of existing with imagination, if that makes sense. Well, it does. I mean, that was the reason for writing the book, right? To really, <laughs> yeah, truly, right? To really um, offer back a particular as why. So I work with story. I share story. You know, I share case examples. But I talk about, hey, how do you utilize imagination in life and in the workplace and with family and in a world that's becoming increasingly technological? You know, how do you keep humanity alive? Our connectedness to the, the really the depth and breadth of what's possible, the emerging possible. And so I do really take the time to not, 
not only offer exercises and share story, but to talk about direct experiences that I've had working with people in corporations and families in all kinds of settings. Yes, you did use a lot of your life experiences as a template to springboard off and tell these stories to help people understand this. So what do you think about children? Like what if we instituted and exposed children to these concepts at an early age, almost in an educational context, would that radically transform the human experience? Oh, yes, is the short answer. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, The uh, children come into the world in imagination, of imagination. It's not something that's laid on them. It's part of their biological inheritance, actually, is to imagine. That's what creates a kind of navigational system. They are learning forever. They're picking up information, you know, from new birth just to one years old, the amount of things that are experienced and seen and touched and taste. I mean, that's when the brain is evolving, right? Mind, brain, consciousness is beginning its evolution. And it goes to two. And, you know, still you're telling children, telling stories. They're working with imaginal figures. They are participating in a quality of consciousness that is quite extraordinary. As an adult, when we join them, rather than only, you know, try to stop them, uh, <laughs> we find ourselves coming to life. We get curious, right? We open up. Yeah, I get parenting. I've been there, parenting yes. and grandparenting. So, yes, I understand the necessity to have, you know, work with boundaries and structure and all like that. And to, oh, how beautiful it is to create a frame that's safe, protected, and supports imaginal life in kids. It is really, really so helpful. We're challenged now, though, because it is not, you know, not too soon by one and a half two, you know, there's a device that's really close by and we're on, you know, we're in the algorithmic world, right? We're subject to a programmer's code in some form or fashion. Is it negative? Not really. It's not completely negative. I don't buy into the opposite thing, but we have to learn to cooperate and have to learn to co-create along with the new technologies to, to sustain that kind of imaginal presence. The thing though, is the child's mind. It's not childishness. It's the child's mind, the capacity to intuit, to play, to be part of things. Um, I offer another example in the book uh, with my wife. We were at our grandchildren, with our grandchildren, their parents left. It was a gift to their parents to, to get have them have couples time, right? Um, yeah, great, that one. And, uh, and, you know, when we see the kids, the grandchildren, they love to see us, you know, mostly because we often spoil them too much. But whatever. <laughs> They they jump in our hands, you know, like that. And I tell stories all the time. So the kids love that, you know, it's like this. So we're talking and all of a sudden there's quiet and we go, well, where, what there's <laughs> and the kids are in their room now, both on screens, completely absorbed, lost to human interaction. And really their eyes just kind of deaden them. Is it marvelous, the new stuff on on screen? Yeah, of course. There's ingenuity and there's art and there is action and there is dynamism. There's lots of great things. And two, they're in trance. They are in trance. uh, And they're following a scripted storyline, right? Uh, My wife has an idea. She says, hey. She knows, right, that they have costumes because it was before the Halloween. And they had costumes. He was spiral. 
Spider-Man. That was his whole world. And she is a version of a Wonder Woman, a version of that. Um, so she said, look, yeah, I know you're in the screen, but why don't you do this? Get into your costumes and come on out here. And they go, well, okay. They dress up in their costumes. We move the sofa back, the ta coffee table over a bit, and then we go into enactment. All right, now we are not just watching the screen, but we're enacting the imagination. And then we be we're invited in. So now we are in a theater of imagination, embodied theater of imagination, and acting even with words and lines and make-believe and all like that. We bring into the family home, right, an embodied experience of imaginal life. And that we're needing to do more and more now as screen time becomes forever increased. And, you know, kids now, they're not on their own, right? The right. avatars are so much a part of their experience or online identities going into their, you know, teens now, online identities, avatars, all that's in the home now too. So how do you create at the dinner table with adults <laughs> and your kids room for the others that are also present? And so that's the dance. And I offer a whole bunch of ideas about how to do that in family life wow yes because the technology is not going anywhere right so it's like we have to create the balance the technology can inspire it can motivate the imagination and then when that seed is there that's when you go into the real reenactment the play for children because that is the most important part of child development is the play the engagement the problem solving and the imagination and the imagination itself activates the innate genius, like you were talking about earlier, which we all have. There's so many people that are exalted, uh, like we were saying, Joseph Campbell, obviously a genius. I have no problem exalting Joseph Campbell, Albert Einstein, all of these figures. We look at them as geniuses, but they're human beings with the exact same potential as every other human being. They just, for whatever reason, however it happened, it activated for them in a different way. But through these imaginal techniques and the techniques you outline in your book, you can activate that innate genius. Can you talk about that more? Yes, and it's so true. I mean, each of us come into the world with the capacity to discover our authenticity, yes. our innate genius, you know, our evolved potential. We get scripted out of that quickly, you know, and I know there are demands in life and we need to take care of our family. We need to take care of ourselves. We are asked to do a lot of things that take us away from that essential sense of calling. You know, our intelligate, the Greek word, our sense of destiny, our life purpose. So we move away from that. The question becomes, the challenge is, how do we realign with that sense of life purpose? Because I know for me, and I know for so many people that I'm working with, when I realign in that way, something different happens. The quality of life changes, right? I feel a sense of deep belonging to something that is moving through me. I am part of a flow of experience rather than forever struggling against. And I feel that sense of being present much more deeply. And it happens from in small little ways to bigger ways. Here's one right in the middle. Worked with this man, uh, Fred was <laughs> his name. So I won't give a last name. Of okay. <laughs> and I actually made up that Fred from another name, but okay. uh, he comes and he is, he's quite successful. He 
business. He's doing well. He's a contractor. He's got his own company, right? He's doing good things in the world and uh, is providing for his family, contributing to the community, and he's unhappy. Not tragically unhappy, but it's just not working. He's feeling stuck in his life, right? And he's doing the right thing. He's getting a lot of praise. He gets that. He's pleased by that. He is really um, grateful for that. And he comes to one of the workshops that I offer and he said, look, you know, it's just, I don't know. I just saw this online. I, I, I Somebody told me about you. And I just wanted to do something else. I'm just not in the place in life where I would like to be. So one thing leads to the next. And we talk, I talk with him like I talk with so many. I say, Fred, just try something simple here. Let's just do something. During your days, the next number of days, when you're at your workplace or even in the home place, even driving or walking to work or back. Just notice, change your perspective. Go from focus and the busy mind to a curious mind, just very easily. Open your curiosity and notice what begins to spark, what begins to reveal itself. Let's not make this complicated, not overly psychological, not metaphysical, even though I'm big in metaphysics, but just very simple, right? Um, And he said, okay, I can do that. I can do that. I said, well, you know, let's even get more particular. So find a journal or use a tab, let their device and just keep track. So collect the sparks. So he does this. Five days later, I see him again. Number of days later, I see him again. He said, okay, I've been doing that. You know, it's curious. It's weird, really. I'm noticing things that I hadn't noticed before. Go, yeah, it's great. Great. Well, what, what's beginning to happen? Well, first I'm slowing down. Number one. <laughs> And number two, I'm not so, you know, thinking all the time, thinking, thinking, thinking what I need to do to satisfy satisfy my customers and give assignments to the people that are working for me and all like that. I know it's really important. I can do that. I actually can do that easily now. Um, It's just that now I'm just paying attention to other things. All right, let's take another week. He takes another week and he starts to, and then he comes in two weeks later and I say, okay, now Let's make a pattern and we take all the little hints and we allow the hints themselves to place themselves in a little pattern. We don't make it complicated, not overly complex. And I just have them doodle, just doodle. Of course, he is very gifted at doing all kinds of design things, but he doodles and he starts to make a pattern. From that pattern, something emerges and he says, well, wait a minute, there's something happening here. What's that? Well, just in my way of doing this, I'm remembering something from long ago. Well, what's that? Well, when I was in middle school, I remember something. I remember being in woodshop. I loved being in woodshop. I loved it. I loved creating things and doodling things and inventing things and making them. It was so rewarding. Oh my gosh, I love that. So then we go another week. I said, you know, follow your desire. <laughs> follow your love. Follow your passion. Okay, I'm going to do that. And then start to bring all the hints around that which he does to make this longer story very short now. Um, he comes back. He said, you know what? I really reflected deeply, Steve, on what you were sharing and what's going on with me. I honestly don't want to be a contractor anymore. I don't. I know. You know what I really want to do? I said, well, what's that? I want to make, I want to make things. That's how it all started in the beginning. I want to go back. I want to make things. (laughs) Months go by. He transitioned, doesn't do it recklessly, one step at a time. He's become a finished carpenter, highly valued in town now for his work. He loves it. 
He loves it. He did not abandon his company, the employees, his family, anything like that. But he's become a finished carpenter. He's found his calling. And uh, he followed the path of imagination. His curious mind, picking up the hints, allowed the pattern that connects, talking about you know quantum, the pattern that connects, and uh, it allowed him to really find his true calling. That's beautiful. What a beautiful story. And also, he took the leap. He had the faith. He saw his soul's purpose, his true calling, what he felt. And he took the leap. Now, like you said, he didn't do it in a reckless way, but he did it in a way that was true to himself, where the goal was being what he wanted to be, which was a finished carpenter. And that's so beautiful because nature will literally move mountains to give you what you want that's true to yourself. Literally, like the universe will move around you matter will program itself around your intentions when they are coming from the heart when they are true to your soul isn't that amazing it is amazing that was beautifully shared but just said yes it is always amazing to me and then when i'm in alignment personally when i'm in alignment with that calling something different happens really i'm not as troubled with all the distractions or the demands right i find a different life force, you know, a force of character. As James Hillman said, I find I'm in alignment with my true purpose, my character, right? It does take courage. It does take courage to set the time aside each day live in that, but the reward is extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. Because life is for expansion and fuller expression. It never wants to retract that life force. So when you are doing that, you are connected to source itself, literally the rhythm of the universe, life itself. So yeah, that's very calming, I would say. You're there, you're in that true field. I don't even know what that field is, the source field. I don't, I'm not sure, but it's a beautiful place to be. Yeah, no, I just want to share, you know, it's a parent working with children can find their artistry, right? Um, a teacher working with kids can find her, his, their artistry. So it is. it doesn't have to be Einstein. But though Einstein came back, as you shared, right? He said, when he was asked, well, where did you get all this intellectual capability, this, this way of figuring things out and come up with relativity theory? And that famous quote that he's now noted for, right? Hey, it wasn't about knowledge. You know, that's, there's, it's not knowledge. It's really imagination. The, extent that I live in my imagination, in the imagination that lives around and through me, that's when the genius comes and the revelations happen. Right. The inspirational field, there's something there. But you talk about in your book, this concept of confluence. And I'd like for you to talk about this a little bit, because it seems like that was part of or at least one of the main crux points of the book was just attaining this confluence. Yes, it is. And um for me, when we're in imagination, when we're in the matrix of imagination, I just offer a, a design where there's four quadrants, four quadrants of imagination. One, of course, is Earth. We've mentioned that, that regenerativity, the imagination, the intelligence of Earth, right? Of course. Oh, essential. We're all of that substance. Uh, the second is the psyche, the psyche itself, you know, mind, imagination. It's so important. It's all what we've been talking about. And that's such a big part of the field of imagination is the capacity to be with the many figures of imagination, not the I, the we, right? The many selves of imagination. And the third is, right, the machine, the new technologies. We can't do without that. It's part of who we are and what we're about. And when we get into this even more deeply, as I 
go in when we're working with physiological affliction, disease syndromes in a complementary way. You know, there's a lot that can be offered from this perspective. And in this instance, machine has to do with functionality, right? The actuality, how our body works, you know, from the new technologies to simple functionality of body experience, machine, right? And of course, cosmos, you know, the transcendent functions, the bigger than. Some people say something of the spiritual. Spiritual meaning the transcendent, the universal. When those four quadrants interrelate, intersects, what they do in all of our lives. There's right. elements that are forever present in one way or the next. But at the intersections, there's a confluence. And at each intersection, at the place of the confluence, a portal opens. And to the extent that we can bring ourselves through that portal, we then have access to the journeying in the realms of imagination. That's where we meet the story makers, right? That's where we meet these soul companions. That's where we engage the intelligence and knowledge, the wisdom stories that come forward from those figures. Wow. And like you said, it can affect physical healing. When you have that confluence, when you're able to balance your imagination in that way, it can kickstart a meaningful healing process. Like you talk about in your book, this imaginal healing, which I thought was really incredible. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we've set up now what are called healing sanctuaries and, um, and they're places that people that are suffering from illness and disease can come. And what we do is we combine those four elements that I just suggested, earth, mind, right? Functionality, universe. And when those come together, it's very, very effective. It's good medicine. Um, person suffering, a woman suffered from arthritis. Oh, so painful. You know, rheumatoid arthritis. And did all the right things. Tried a lot. Worked with wonderful healthcare providers. She did. But the problem was it was getting worse and worse. It wasn't getting better. It was hurtful. So she wanted to try something in addition, right? So in addition, she comes and we listen. And, uh, you know, an image comes towards her and she experiences it in the realm of imagination and she feels regenerative earth. And so we suggest her, hey, you know, go find, literally find something in the backyard. And she had a garden, so she, she loved the garden when she could. It's so painful now. She took some of that regenerative earth. And then from the psyche, from the mind, from the imagination, she had a figure in there. And it was actually a figure that found her in a dream time. And it was a favorite animal, her pet dog, who had a wound. So it was a wounded dog, but her beloved. She loved this dog and vulnerable with the wound, right? And then she um, had something she felt cold. And kind of that's what happens. You know, you get tight, you feel cold. So we just simply asked her to easy, 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 rub hands together, you know, create the warmth that that does generate in functionality. And then something transcended. And in this instance, in this kind of homeopathic medicine, the really the intention is, hey, if I have a belief that if I put all this together, that I will contribute to my wellness, that belief of something transcendent. We all know that because it's in many traditions, spiritual and otherwise, the actual belief in the capacity to heal thyself, right? That place. And we put all that together and we created a ritual, an imaginal ritual. A little bit of earth, right? The wounded animal, her beloved, 
the warmth of our hands coming together, functionality, and a belief, a belief that this is going to work. And then we created a mixture of those four things, brought them into confluence, as we talked about. And then the ritual was, hey, every day, when you are under, when you're working with your healthcare uh, professionals and they're offering their um, remedies, so to speak, either a medicine ingestion or physical therapy of some sort, before that, bring yourself into this ritual place, into this kind of time, which she did every day, right? She had this right next to her bedside, this kind of imaginal medicine, this confluence that created a concoction for her. And sure enough, like it wasn't a week later that she started to feel more fluidity. Her pain lessened, um, and it was a great complementary medicine to the other healthcare experiences that she was having. Yeah. Wow. wow, that's a powerful story because, again, it lends itself to this idea that we have the ability to control literally the matter that we're made out of, and to control that vibratory field to heal ourselves. People often forget that we're living light. I mean, we're living inside of a biological vehicle that has its own consciousness and its own mode of function. But the us, the true us, the real human is something else and it's connected directly to source. So in a way it has infinite power. So if we can get a hold of just a percentage of that power, we can actually control the vibratory rate of the matter we exist in to heal ourselves and actually, again, co-create the reality we live in. It's super powerful. No, I love that word source because that's exactly right, right? It's sourced from that super powerful ah, resource. <laughs> yes. I don't know what it is. A lot of religions, a lot of people will try to tell you what it is. I don't, I don't know if anybody's actually got it right, but I know uh, it's there. That's about as far as I could go with it. Yes, indeed. I agree. With <laughs> wow. Well, we've had such an incredible conversation. Let me just ask you one more question about your incredible book, and we'll talk about where you're at and where to find you. This method that you outline in your book, it seems like it's a way to let imagination be your mentor. Let your own personal imagination teach you how to grow because all of that visualization the people, uh, the group that you're talking about that you can call in your soul companions, all of that is there to help you expand. So we have that ability, it seems, to really create our own reality. And this book really just outlines how this works, the dynamics, the functionality, how it all happens, at least as best as you can. Yeah, I think the first half of the book is, hey, how do I get inside of imagination? You know, that, that's what we talked about, the dig. What are the steps? I mean, concretely, what are those steps? What is the process? What is the method? How do I live inside the vast resource of the imagination matrix? And then in there, how do I increase my innate intelligence and find my imaginal intelligence and find my innate genius? That's the point, right? How do I increase imaginal intelligence and connect with my innate genius? And the second half of the book is how do we utilize this in the world place, right? Truly, right. concretely, what are the ways of bringing this into life and into community? And using it to expand our individual service. 
yeah, the last part of the book I call it ensouled stewardship. Yes. In other words, to be in service of community, to family, to others, and to ourselves. That's the that is the, the end game, right? It's, yes. It, it seems like at least it's one layer of the correct uh universal human experience where we're living in flow with source and the universe and love. Yes, ensouled stewardship, which of course you outline in your book you talk about all of these things and let me tell you people where to find it of course amazon all the places where you can get books the imagination matrix how to access the greatest you have for creativity connection and purpose and he has another book which i guess we're going to have to talk about the next time he comes on which is about dream tending so we didn't even talk about dream tending so you're guaranteed to come back that book is also available dream tending awakening to the healing power of dreams Whoa. you know that's going to be a great episode and you can find all of this all of this information at dreamtending.com and guess what people there's courses there if you want to take an even deeper knife you read the book you love the book you read the other book you love that book too i don't know how you wouldn't and you want to take a deeper dive there's courses there's events it's all there dreamtending.com on instagram it's instagram.com slash dreamtending you go to those places you will find answers to any question that may have arisen as you've listened to this episode. So Steven, whoa, what a conversation. Thank you so much for your time, your generosity, all of your energy. It's, it's, it, I, I can't even express how it means to me. Oh, well, thanks so much. Yeah. My heart is open. It's wonderful to be in conversation with you truly. Yes. And is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with before we go? Yeah, I think so. There's one, one thing that, that touches you know, to be in community of others, like we are in community here and now listening, because, you know, we're listening and other people are listening at the same time to the yes. very things that we're talking about. We are connected. We are. And to be in these extended communities really does support our deep dive into imagination and our way of being in life with a sensitivity that is really particular and so important in the world of today. So. Yeah, I'd like to that. <laughs> wow, that was beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here, Stephen. We just have to do the work. We just need to be enlightened humans. Look, we have a mission, and the mission is a united earth, a beautiful heaven on earth where we're all living together in a high-frequency experience. And it takes people like us, like the people listening, doing the work, bringing this energy into our lives, into our families, integrating imagination, doing all of those things, developing ourselves so we can have that. So thank you so much again, Stephen, for being here. Thank you. It's great. All yes. right. Well, please hold through the outro music and everyone. Fantastic episode. Check out the website, dreamtending.com. Check out the books, the courses, the events. I guarantee you're going to love it. And we will definitely See you next week, Midnight on Earth.